I know we stream now, but uh, back in the olden days, you had to get there on time or else you missed the first, you know, whatever, however late you were, you missed those minutes, right? Your parents will tell you all about it. Anyway, Jeff reminded Nate, so dad reminded son, that the television had not been working because of a problem with the cable box. Again, your parents will fill you in on that. The repairman had been called, but since it was Sunday, he wasn't expected to come until the next day. And even if he had showed up, the house was locked while they, were, while they had been at church. A few minutes after, uh, a few minutes after, sorry, after a few minutes of sullen silence, Nate suggested they pray that God would fix their TV in time for Robin Hood. Now, Jeff was about to remind Nate that we should not pray for such things because God is not at our beck and call. When he remembered the sermon text from that day, does it, don't you love it when God just like plans all this out, right? First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The preacher had exhorted the congregation to pray about any matter that was on their heart, large or small, for if it troubled them, then their heavenly father cared about it. Jeff wanted his son to know that he could turn to God for any troubling matter. At a glance in the rearview mirror, he saw Nate's pouting face and clearly showed that he was that missing Robin Hood was going to be troubling for him to his son. So Jeff pulled the car over and listened intently as Nate asked God to please fix their TV in time for Robin Hood. And more concerned about his son's developing relationship with God than he was about the TV, Jeff asked the Lord to please hear Nate's prayer. Soon they pulled into the driveway and Nate bounded towards the front door as Jeff pulled the car into the garage. Jeff knew that, the, that he had locked the door. He remembered specifically that morning locking the door. And so he was surprised to find the door standing open behind Nate. Jeff was flabbergasted when he entered the house and found Nate sitting on the floor watching, guess what, Robin Hood. Just then, a family friend came down from upstairs. This family friend had unexpectedly been passing through town and knowing where the outside key was hidden, had let himself in to just pay a visit to his friends as he was passing through. And after just a few minutes after he had arrived, a TV repairman showed up and asked if he could quickly go in and take a look at the cable box, a rare can we say that out loud? A rare Sunday cable man visit. <laughs> it turns out that the problem was very simple and the TV repairman quickly resolved the problem. Jeff says now more than a, dec more than a decade later that Nate barely remembers the incident, but Jeff remembers it vividly. As an example of the extraordinarily and extraordinary and completely unpredictable ways in which God can work. Now, if you're my age, I'm a Gen Xer, right? If you're my age, uh, you might have grown up with this phrase, don't put God in a box. Remember that? Don't put God in a box. It's like sometimes we think God can't do something or that God won't work through that situation or that person. But I was always remember reminded in my college fellowship uh, in my church, don't put God in a box. God does things and works in ways and through people we don't always expect. And we're going to see that in Esther chapter 9 uh, today. And the big question that we're going to wrestle with is this. What is surprising about how God works in this particular passage? What is surprising about how God works in this particular passage? Now, just looking at the lay of the land. So you got your Bible open to Esther 9. 
Esther 9 is uh, 32 verses, and Esther 10 is 3. So we could either have a really long sermon today and a really short one next week, or we could have a really a, a, a short, a medium-sized one today, and <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to do what I want. We're going to cover Esther 9, 1 through 19 today, and then I'll cover the rest of the book, next, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. Now, before we, get into, before we get into this too far, let's read the text. Esther chapter 9, 1 through 19. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, remember there was edict number one, you can destroy all the Jews, and edict number two was the Jews can defend themselves against attack. So this is the day that that, that came to fruition. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. I love that. No one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did as they pleased to those who hated them. Boy, that's a loaded phrase, isn't it? Verse 6, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Bear with me. Parshandanatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vyazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Ham, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Keep in mind, they're already dead. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in, the, in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces were also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed, wait for it, 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness, but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day 
making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day which they send gifts of food to one another. May God bless the reading of his word. This, this, this account is, can I just say before I get into my outline, can I just say this account is troubling. There's some things in this passage that are very good, like, yay, the Jews are going to get victory over their enemies. And there's some things that are quite troubling. And let's look into it. First of all, this is all couched. This whole passage, this whole book is couched in God's purposes, right? We, we have to constantly remind ourselves as God's people what his stated purposes are, which are found in his word. Way back during the very establishment of Israel as a nation itself and the giving of the law of Moses... God told them what would happen if they disobeyed them, if they disobeyed him, and went down the road of idol worship. Take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And let me just read a little bit of this. It's very, it's very poignant stuff. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. I'm not going to put it on the screen. You'll have to open up your Bible. Deuteronomy 30, 11. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel, right? For this command I for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we should hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we might hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But, verse 17, if your hearts turn away and you do not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness, to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. See, God's promises are very, very uh, easy to understand. God had told Israel, listen, I'm giving you this law. You walk in my ways. You walk in my ways, you're gonna be blessed. You choose to not walk in my ways. You choose to worship false gods. And it's not going to go well for you. You won't live long in this land. Well, guess what? Over Israel's entire history, they did have a tendency towards idol worship. And what is idol worship? Romans 1, I think, makes it very clear. Romans 1, 20, uh, 1 through 25 says, For although, this is Paul writing, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry, simply put, is image worship or divine honor paid to any created object, whether that be an animal or something other, some other physical thing that's created. In our world that we live in today, we see all kinds of examples of idol worship. People worship, different people groups worship the sun, the moon, the stars, ancestors, nature, stones. You get the idea. Israel in her history had periods of time where they got involved in idolatry, but near the end of the kingdom years, before they went into Babylonian activity, it got really bad. <laughs> you can remember King Josiah and other good kings in the, in the nation's Israel, they would, they, would take, they would take office as king and they would take down the high places. You ever read that in your Old Testament and wonder what that means? They would take down the high places. Basically, they would dismantle, they would dismantle the areas where people would gather to worship false gods. They would take them down. Then other, other kings would come in and they would allow or directly erect, re-erect the high places. These were stations all over Israel that someone could go and worship a false god. Sometimes it would be up on a high mountain. Sometimes it would be near the city gates. Tracy and I got to see some ruins of some high places when we were at, when we toured the Holy Land years ago. But it got really bad. And I want you to imagine that king after king provided for and even encouraged the worship of these false gods. Idolatry worked its way into the entire culture. It is conceivable that the nation of Israel still viewed itself as we are God's nation, right? We are God's people. They, they viewed themselves perhaps as God-fearing, God-worshipping people because they practiced some vestiges of the law. They, they tipped their hat to, to the sacrificial system here and there, maybe. And while they were doing that, in the same day, they would take their same body out and bow the knee to a false god. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. He would not allow them to worship another. So ask yourself the question, how would a good God, how would a holy God possibly go about the business of taking a people that was so rebellious towards him, so broken and, and bring them back to him? Well, he did it through Babylonian captivity, right? God allowed Israel to ex experience something so traumatic that by today's standard, we would stand back and probably horrified, uh, in our horrified state, we would say, how can a good God allow this to happen? If you don't believe me, read Lamentations 1. Just read Lamentations, but start with Lamentations 1. I mean, it was a bad scene that was going on in Israel. Why was God doing this? Was he doing it to destroy Israel? Is that part of his plan and purpose? It is not. While they were in captivity, God raised up other prophets. Ezekiel was one of them. Uh, 
to tell the people and to encourage them what was to come. Take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. And let me just read a few verses here. Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. This is, again, a prophet is a, is a person, a man in this case, who God raised up and gave him a word to speak to the people. They're in captivity. It's, bad, it's a bad situation. What does Ezekiel say? Verse 14 of Ezekiel 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem had said, Go far from the Lord to us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and, I, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. Talking about all that false God stuff, idol worshiping stuff. And I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Even amidst the horrifying circumstances of the Babylonian exile, later the Persian situation that we find ourselves in the book of Esther, God's purposes are always good to draw the people to himself. But now we get into the book of Esther and we see, we see in this chapter our brokenness. We see the brokenness of Esther and Mordecai. We see the brokenness of people in general. Remember, in the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. God's name is never mentioned, but what we're going to see here in a few minutes is we're going to see some activity by Esther and Mordecai that cause us to go, this is disgusting. What's going on here? Why are they acting like this? You see, so, you see folks, this is just the nature of you know, our, our theological understanding, our biblical understanding of God's word helps us to understand who we are, and we understand as people that sometimes we do well. Sometimes we do we actually act in accordance with, with what we should be doing, what God wants us to be doing. And so what do we see in this text? Well, we see one thing. They, they gathered together to fight. Uh, they gathered together um, in every province, and they, they went to battle. And I find it very interesting. Uh, it says very clearly in, in the text, uh, you would think, okay, you would think in 127 provinces in the, in the kingdom of Persia, some of the Jews that assembled themselves would be defeated. Text doesn't say that. I want you to imagine that, that, um, that we got every, every man in here named Steve. There's a few Steves in this church. We got everybody named Steve together, and uh, the Steves now have to, uh, and we, have, we do this nationwide in all of our churches. All the Steves have to defend themselves against the rest of the church. It'd be fun, kind of funny, right? Not funny, it'd be really bad. But... Uh, I would imagine that in some churches, there's a lot of guys named Steve and they would probably have victory. But in, in this church, we only have a few guys named Steve, so we're gonna get them, right? But that's not what the text says. The text says that everywhere that the Jews assembled themselves together to fight off the people that hated them, they had victory. That reminds me, right? 
That reminds me of, of God's hand on the Israelites as they went into the promised land. You know, they went up to the big city of Jericho and they defeated it because that was God's plan that they would. So it's interesting. It's interesting that they gathered together to fight and they accomplished everything they want. They also, we also see that they took no plunder. And this is, this is kind of an interesting facet here, right? Were they, do you remember the edict? Were they given permission to take plunder? From last week, they were. They were able to kill men, women, and children and take whatever plunder they want. But three times in Esther 9, it tells us they took no plunder. Why is that? Well, there's a few different thoughts out there amongst the scholars. One thought is uh, that if you're gonna do holy war, if you're gonna, now this, we're not told that they're doing a holy war. We're not told, God's not mentioned in this book, but if you, if you think that the Jews are fighting in their, in their minds, they're fighting for God against God's enemies, which is never stated in the book, then traditionally in holy war, you don't take plunder. I guess the, I, that's what I read. It's, it's kind of a cultural thing, I guess. But I have a deeper under, I, I think I have a deeper theory anyway as to why they did not take plunder. If you go back, and I've mentioned this several times throughout the book of Esther, but if you go back and remember that in 1 Samuel 15 and earlier than that, um, in the book of Exodus, uh, the Amalekites and the Israelites didn't really get along, right? As Just as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they were escaping Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them when they were very vulnerable. And God said in Exodus that he was gonna wipe them off. They were gonna blot out, the, that he was gonna blot out their memory. Then in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul, the first king of Israel, the first king of Israel did battle against the Amalekites, specifically against King Agag of the Amalekites, and he was told very specifically not to take any plunder, to wipe them out completely, wipe out all the people, wipe out all the animals. And in 1 Samuel 15, Saul did not do that. He took of the, he plundered them. He took their animals and he left King Agag alive. So I wonder, I just wonder, I think this is a good theory. I think that in this book, what we're looking at here is the Jews now, Esther, Mordecai, well, they, they wrote the decree and they said you could plunder, but the Jews now are behaving better than Saul did. Better than the king back in the days of the kingdom. They took no plunder. So sometimes we do well, right? Sometimes we do well, but sometimes we do poorly. And there's some things that I'm about to mention and I'm not trying to make... I don't have all the information, right? The book of Esther is somewhat frustrating because it doesn't always tell you what Esther's thinking, what Mordecai's thinking, what is the purpose for this. It just reports, this is what happened. So here's some instances of things that happened that are somewhat troubling to me. Number one is the fate of Haman's sons. They killed them. And then the next day, they hung them. They hung their bodies. Now, back in those days, the reason that you would uh, kill all of Haman's sons, right, is because you could, you could imagine you're going to live for the rest of your life kind of looking in the rearview mirror going, that guy Haman that we, we hung him, all his sons are still alive. And one of these days, one of them is going to get, you know, angry about what happened, that they grew up without a daddy and they're going to come and they're going to attack us. So sometimes you would just do that to eliminate them from, eliminate a future threat Sometimes you do it to send a message. Definitely when you hang someone's dead body out 
on the gallows like they did, you're sending a message, you don't mess with us. <laughs> but again, I think there's a, a, there's a deeper thing here. God told Israel after the thing, after the, the episode at the Exodus that he was going to wipe, he was going to blot their memory out. And then he told King Saul to devote them to destruction, and he did not do it. He did not finish the job. He left King Agag alive. Haman is referred to as an Agagite, possibly a descendant of King Agag. In this episode, where God is not mentioned, Esther and the Jews and Mordecai finish the job. They wipe out all the descendants of Haman, the Agagite, who possibly was an Amalekite. But still, it's a brutal scene. It's a brutal scene. And it just doesn't, it, you, you read it and you go, is that what they should have done? Ah, it just doesn't sit quite right with you, right? We also see, we also see this whole revenge versus justice thing, right? Justice is kind of getting what you deserve, but, but revenge is punishing those who wronged you, right? Um, we don't know the motive of Esther and the people, but here's what we do know. And I wish we did kind of know, but, but again, God is perfect and he's revealed what he needs to reveal. But here's what we know. On the first day of the, of the, of the uh, battle, the Jews killed 500 people in Susa, the citadel. And, and again, this is my speculation. I don't know if, if Esther and Mordecai had some intelligence that said, you know, we know, we, we can identify 800 people in Susa who don't like us, the Jews, and today we only wiped out 500. So tomorrow, so we need to extend this a day, so we got to hunt down those other 300 people. And, and t- I don't know. But it seems, it, it, it seems like um, whatever was going on, uh, it, it's debatable whether they were going out for justice or they were going out for revenge because they because Esther called for she asked for and was granted a second day for the slaughter in the in the capital. We don't know. Did the Jews carry out justice or revenge? Certainly, in the text, it tells us that the Jews did battle against all those who hated them. So was that people that they knew had a bad opinion of the Jews, or was that the people that actually came out to fight against them with? With weapons, we don't know, but we do know this: they did the job, and they were they were undefeated across the empire. But again, it just kind of sits funny with me, right? That this is the way that God used, and this is how, the method that God used to do it, and this is how the people acted. Then we also see that second day of killing. We don't know again why that happened, but we do know. History tells us, and by the way, we just went at the end of February, uh, 26 was one of the days, I forget what the other day was, but in February was Purim, and Purim is the holiday that we'll talk about next Sunday, and Purim is celebrated over two days. And that makes sense if you read this text, because after the first day in the rest of the empire, they had a celebration, and after the second day in Susa, they had a celebration, so Purim is officially today a two-day holiday. We'll talk about that next week. Why did they extend it to a second day? Don't know. It wasn't for greedy purposes, right? It tells us in the text three times they took no plunder. We just don't know. So we're left here not knowing all the whys of why Esther and Mordecai and the Jews acted the way they did. 
So we're kind of left scratching our heads a bit. It kind of reminds me, this kind of reminds me of Romans 7, right? Romans 7, it's that, it's that passage of scripture that tells me, I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. You know, the, the good that I try to do, I don't do. And, the, you know, and it, Paul concludes by saying, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I think Wes's testimony today before his baptism illustrated, I think very vividly, the point that we're, we're in this battle in this life against sin. You know, we're fighting against it constantly. We're capable of doing wonderful things. We're also capable of doing great evil. We don't always perform perfectly. But I want to wrap up by talking about one last thing, which is God's methods. God's methods. Definitely in God's word, we've seen God work through miracles, right? Think about, again, the Exodus. God sends plagues to Israel, and Moses keeps telling Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. And he keeps saying, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so he sends all these plagues till finally Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. And oh, by the way, take all of our gold and silver with you. Just beat it. But then he regrets that decision and sends the army of Pharaoh after them. They have chariots, which are the modern day equivalent of tanks today. And the Israelites have nothing but the clothes on their backs and the sandals on their feet, right? So, well, and a bunch of gold that's heavy. And so they're escaping. And what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea and allows all of his people to cross over on dry land. And as Pharaoh's army is making their way across in pursuit, he closes the Red Sea and wipes them out. Without lifting a finger, the army, one of the most powerful armies on the face of the planet is gone. Then they get out of the wilderness and they're wandering and they're complaining and there's no food out here. You know, how come we don't have a chef to make us some waffles? I don't know what's going on. And God sends quail, right, from heaven. And he, and he said manna from heaven and all this kind of stuff. God can definitely work through miracles. We see it in Jesus, in the life and work of, of Jesus Christ himself and in, in the apostles. And we also know that God can work through spiritually, spiritual God-fearing people, right? The Bible is filled with examples of of, of him working through people like Joseph and David. And oftentimes, especially in David's young life, right? The, the example, David's example is very clean. You know, he's got, he's this little pipsqueak of a kid and he goes up against Goliath. And says, Who is it that stands, you know, in opposition to the armies of the, the one true God? And he goes and he strikes Goliath down and cuts off his head, right? David had some problems later in his life, spiritually speaking, but oftentimes we have these very clean examples. But if we're, and if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will think that these first two categories, miracles and spiritual people, are the only two people that God can work through or that we'll use. Some of you know who are sitting in this very room that there are churches out there that make their hay on the following promise. God isn't working if it's not supernatural. Now, that's false teaching. That's false teaching. But God's not working unless you can see a miracle happen. That's false teaching. Why? Because Esther takes a stick of dynamite and blows that out of the water. Right? What do we see here? We see God's name is not even mentioned, and yet you see the providential hand of God working in all these circumstances to, do, to accomplish his stated purposes. And so God works through pagans. He worked through King Ahasuerus, right? God works through pagans. Now, that pagan king's, 
His ambitions don't have anything to do with God's ambitions. His ways don't have anything to do with God's ways. And so can God use a guy like Ahasuerus? Yes. Is Ahasuerus working in conjunction with God? Not at all, but he can still use him. Then God also works through morally ambiguous, God-fearing people of who this is the category that I would put Esther and Mordecai. We don't, they don't mention the Lord. They don't talk about him. They, they seem to make decisions sometimes based on pragmatism, whatever. And yet God is using their actions to bring about his stated purposes. I'm going to circle back to what I said earlier about Israel and idolatry, right? What, how, what, why is it that God today in 2021, why is it that God gave us this book, two thirds of which, by the way, is kind of the adventures of Israel, the Old Testament, you know, the adventures of Israel. And, and in that book, in that, in that Old Testament section, there's, there's, there's all these things about Israel Giving, getting great defeat over its enemies and all this kind of stuff. And then they defy God, they fall into idol worship and, and all this stuff. Why is that there? Why is it there? It's there for you and me. It's there for you and me to remind us of one thing that God is trying to always make sure that we human beings understand. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot obey a law well enough we cannot be good enough to earn our salvation. That Old Testament is there to remind us that we are helpless and in need of a Savior, the person, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law talked about sacrificing lambs. Jesus came and, and is called the Lamb of God, perfect and spotless. And when 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 you had to go to the temple to make your sacrifice as a, as a Jewish person, make your sacrifice of a lamb, you had to do it over and over and over. And, and Hebrews tells us that Jesus came and he was the perfect spotless son of, of God. And when he made that sacrifice, when he died on the cross, it was finished. Sin, your sin, my sin had been paid in full. And what, what does God ask for us in return? He asks us to trust him. To trust Jesus Christ is sufficient. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin and that his ways are good and we can walk in them. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your savior from sin? Are there areas of life that you have not yet handed over to God? Is he working, are, is he working through you because you're, of your obedience to his word and your, your attempts, failed as they may be and imperfect as we all are, but your attempts to be obedient to him and walk in his ways, or is he working in spite of you? I don't want to be that guy. What's the answer to the big question? The answer to the big question is this. The surprising thing about Esther 9, 1 through 19, is that God sometimes works in ways that are so mysterious that we question whether it's actually him working at all. It's not always through miracles. It's not always through great preachers or spiritual leaders, spiritual giants. Sometimes God works in very, very mysterious ways and through people that we wouldn't look at and say, yep, God's working through that. God is always going to work out his purposes and plans. His ways will not be thwarted. Won't you get on board with them? Align your life with what his word says. Use your tongue the way God tells you to in his word. 
There's blessings associated with that. It's not always easy. All right. I'm gonna let you off the hook today. Here's the application. Go home and think about this. Go home and think about your life. Are you the type of person who is, is working? Your, your life is aligned with God's purposes and plans. Your mission in this life is, this, you would say you, that you've adopted Christ's mission to love God, love others, and make disciples of Jesus Christ, or are you living in opposition to that or just ambivalent to it? Just, you're just, yeah, I'll think about that on Sunday, but for the rest of the week, my life is about me. Perhaps it's time to change that. One last suggestion I'm going to make for you, and, and I, didn't, I didn't get it up on the screen, but uh, I was listening to it this morning. It just gave me good memories. Uh, you might want to go on YouTube or wherever, whatever your favorite music app is and, and listen to a song by Rich Mullins called Who God is Going to Use, Gonna, G-O-N-N-A. Who God is, it's not who God is going to use, it's who God is going to use. That's a fun song, but it also makes you think, and Esther makes an appearance in that song, and it makes me chuckle every time I listen to that part. But you might want to check that out. Who God is going to use by Rich Mullins. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us. Father, help us to understand. Give us a deeper understanding of the fact that you, you are going to accomplish your purposes. And you're going to work those purposes out in all different kinds of ways. It's a mystery to us. It's veiled. You're always at work. Even in the people and the situations that we don't fully understand. We don't understand why World War II happened but when we see after World War II, the rebirth of a nation, Israel, its reestablishment on the map, we stand and go, wow, God is at work. We see that all the time, Father. So help us to be mindful of that and align our ways with your ways. If there's any in here that have not yet, yet trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin, I pray that they would do that today. They would come and talk to me or another believer and do business with you, Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless son of God, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.